0: Well, good evening and welcome to Walt Disney Concert Hall and this program by Jane Parker Smith. Um, she's playing a quite a varied program, but it has a little bit of a French accent. Um, most of the music on the program is either French or French-influenced, and so I want to spend the first part of this talk uh, on a piece that is not French and as, actually didn't begin as an organ piece at all, and that is the uh, transcription of Liszt's Orpheus, a symphonic poem that was transcribed by a French organist, Jean Guillou, who held forth for years at the Parisian church of Saint-Eustache and made many organ transcriptions. Um, and was also the composer of a great deal of very, very fine organ literature. And then in the second half of the program, or the second half of the talk, I have a guest coming to visit, and you'll know more about that shortly. So Franz Liszt was apparently a beautiful and fantastically talented child who played in Vienna around the age of 11 in 1822. And according to one account, he was kissed on the head by the aging Beethoven who pronounced that he would at one day make a big name for himself. And at the age of 12, Franz Liszt made it to Paris, so in some sense, I suppose, he is Parisian. He was born in Hungary, spent much of his life in Paris, and then ended his life in, uh, in Weimar, and then later in, in Rome. But in 1813, he appeared as a pianist in London, and in eight, in, uh, excuse me, at the age of 13 in London, at the age of 14, he was composing an opera that was called Don Sanche, which was performed in Paris. Well, like the young Mozart, Liszt's early years were given over to touring about, um, almost like a circus act. Poor Mozart had been hauled all over Europe by his father and at times his mother, um, and they were really intended to play for the nobility, the aristocracy, and, and the hope was that they would be given money and gifts, which then would help the family's uh, income. Well, Liszt uh, also moved around a great deal, and he began to sort of lose his focus at the time that his father died, that is, his, fo- his focus as a pianist until 1833 when he was about 22 years old and he heard the violinist Niccolò Paganini, who was the greatest virtuoso of his age and who took Paris by storm, and Liszt was in Paris at the time that Paganini came through, and Paganini had a profound influence on the young Franz Liszt. Paganini, his virtuosity was unparalleled by anyone, and when Liszt heard Paganini play, he resolved that he was going to become the Paganini of the piano. Now, that doesn't mean just becoming a virtuoso pianist. It also meant adopting a kind of a stage personality, because one of the things that was noteworthy about Paganini was he had this almost a cult Following. Here's a description of Paganini performing, uh, written by the German writer Heinrich Heine. He said, He dressed from head to foot in black. His body, racked with pain, was slowly wasting away from syphilis. He glided rather than walked across the stage like a menacing vulture, descending into position to consume its prey. His eyes had receded deep into their sockets, and this, together with with his waxen complexion, gave him a spectral appearance, which was enhanced by the dark blue glasses that he wore. The mercury prescribed for his morbo gallico, in other words, French death, in other words, syphilis, had attacked his stomach and rotted his jawbone, causing his teeth to decay and fall out and his mouth to disappear into his chin. When Paganini played, the macabre impression was that of a bleached skull with a violin tucked under its chin. His very name, Paganini, Little Pagan, symbolized the satanic aura with which surrounded his personality. Can you imagine the sight of Paganini on stage in Paris? Well, Paganini's stage presence complemented his astounding virtuosity and many felt his virtuosity could only have resulted from some sort of pact with the devil. His name was, after after all, Paganini and Liszt found Paganini to be a kind of a role model. Already a sensation in Paris Because of his incredible good looks and his seemingly endless virtuosity, Liszt redoubled his efforts in practicing and developed new techniques which were incomprehensible to nearly everyone. And the only pianist in Paris who could compete with Liszt at all was Frederic Chopin. By 1837, Liszt had not only eclipsed all the pianists in sheer technical skill, he had developed a unique personality as well. And in fact, he uh, essentially invented the solo piano recital. It was Liszt who decided that the piano should be orientated this way relative to the audience, as opposed to the old way, which had the pianist facing this direction from the audience. Liszt invented the modern piano recital. His Personality was also distinctive. Henry Rayner, musicologist, says, Liszt's recitals were as much social events as they were concerts. It was possible to eat, drink, and smoke between the items, and the seats were arranged so that the audience could move about the auditorium. Liszt would go to the piano and play for a time. Then he would descend into the auditorium and talk to friends or to those lucky enough to be presented to him. Then he would play a little more, interspersing the entire program with socializing descents into the auditorium. The program invariably ended, of course, with an outburst of the sort of hysteria associated in the 18th century with the singing of Castrati, and in the 20th century by performances of such pop idols as the Beatles and Elvis. List would throw a half-smoked cigar into the audience, and an aristocratic lady would pick it up and tuck it into her boutonniere, and she'd carry it around with her until it either disintegrated or she died. <laughs> Critics such as the famous Edward Hanslick commented on his playing. He said it was free, poetic, replete with imaginative shadings, and at the same time characterized by noble, artistic repose. As a composer, he had his critics, including Hanslick, who just praised his playing. Hanslick said he fails to make a clear, independent impression in his music. He either attempted to fill the gap left by the absence of real musical content or to justify the atrociousness of such content as there is. But Liszt did have his supporters and his um, his admirers among composers. One composer said this of Liszt. He produced secondhand poetry instead of exclusively allowing his own visionary form, the poet in himself, direct musical expression. Nevertheless, although his work seemed to fall a little short of certain demands, one must not overlook how much there is in it that is truly new musically, discovered by genuine intuition. Altogether, his effect has perhaps been even greater than Wagner's, though the many stimuli he left behind for his successors. Who is giving that kind of Kind of backhanded compliment, but nevertheless, positive assessment of Liszt, no less than Arnold Schoenberg, who you would not necessarily think was a great admirer of Franz Liszt. In f- in fact, Schoenberg found so much to admire in Liszt's music that toward the end of his life he wrote, was he not one of those who started the battle against tonality, both through themes which point to no absolutely defined tonal center and through many harmonic details whose musical exploitation has been looked after by his successors. And indeed, much of Liszt's compositions from about the 1840s on is very, very forward-looking, including Orpheus, one of his tone poems. In 1842, at the age of 30, Liszt essentially gave up his concert, its concertizing, and settled in the central German town of Weimar. Now, Weimar, of course, is important and certainly well known to any Bach lovers in this room because Bach served two t- terms of duty in Weimar. The first, when he was very, very young, really only about 16 or 17 years old, and he, was, he seems to have been kind of a lackey in the Weimar court. He probably went around sweeping the floors and emptying chamber pots and the like. Well then he went away, but then he came back and was the court organist for many years in Weimar. Weimar was um, a very, very important city. Johann Goethe was there. It was a real center of intellectual activity in Germany at the time. Well, Liszt settled in in Weimar partly at the urging of his mistress, one Carolyn Sein-Wittgenstein, who was a wealthy Russian princess who maintained a more than 40-year relationship with Franz Liszt. He was also encouraged by the grand duchess Maria Pavlova of Russia, who seems to have engineered his appointment in the Weimar Court. Liszt turned the Weimar Court Orchestra into one of the first-class ensembles in Europe at the time and gave lessons to a number of pianists in the area, including Hans von Bülow, who would later marry Liszt's daughter, Kozima, Liszt championed the music of the volatile Richard Wagner, who took up with Cosima sometime later, and who would ultimately marry Cosima Liszt after she had divorced von Brülo. Well, it was in Weimar that Liszt wrote the majority of his 12 great tone poems, or symphonic poems, and it was Liszt's Uh, music from this period that made him sort of the figurehead of what came to be known as the new German school or the composers who were writing the music of the future. Liszt called his pieces symphonic poems or symphonische Dichtung. Symphonic poems and the terminology is important because the music does not necessarily have to recount or paint a picture of an actual story or an event. Like a poem, it may obliquely reference almost anything from an idea to a philosophical concept, a literary poem, a person, or a mythological figure such as Orpheus. Liszt's well, most famous symphonic poem, which you can't miss if you listen to uh, classical radio at all, is Les Preludes, which was ostensibly related to a poem by a French poet by the name of Alphonse Lamartin. But in the case of Les Preludes, scholars have decided that the the title really had nothing to do with the piece of music. The piece of music was written earlier than that, and Liszt sort of backdated the title because he thought it might have some connection with the poem. Orpheus is one of those symphonic poems that Liszt composed as a kind of a character sketch of for men of creative genius or heroism, the others being Prometheus and Tasso and Mazeppa. Liszt wrote the prefaces for most of his symphonic poems. Actually, most people think that Carolyn Wittgenstein wrote them, but in any case, he writes these kind of elaborate. Prefaces which are supposed to give us some kind of an idea of the peace. In the preface to Orpheus, Liszt, or perhaps Zane Wittgenstein says: despite teachings of the purest morality, the most sublime dogmas, humanity preserves in its bosom those instincts of ferocity, brutality, and sensuality, which it is the mission of art to soften, to calm. Today as ever Orpheus, that is to say art itself, must spread its flow of melody, the subtle vibration of its harmony, like a beneficent light upon the conflicting elements which claw at each other and bleed within the soul of every individual, etc., etc., etc. It goes on, and if you could please interpret that, I'd be willing to give you a lot of money Virtually every one of the symphonic poems of Liszt has some kind of convoluted preface, uh, such as this. Well, the piece premiered, and to and received both uh, both positive and negative reviews, but mostly positive. And it made its way quickly to the United States. It was performed in New York in 1862, in Boston in 1874, in Brooklyn in 1875, and many other places. Just a couple of things for you to listen to. The work begins appropriately with an introduction, which in the orchestral version is played on the harp, Orpheus's instrument. Some instruments, some organs have harp stops. The, um, the composer Yu was apparently a little vague about the registration that he suggested. The recording, recording I'm gonna use here is one by our own Cherry Rhodes, our own treasure of Los Angeles, Cherry Rhodes, that was made at the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia. And I asked Cherry earlier this week, um, if, if there was a harp stop available, and she said not one that she was satisfied with. So she talked to Giyu and he gave his blessing to using slightly different registration. Well, following this, there's a quite noble theme that um, carries on for quite some time over the, over the score and is developed over several pages. These two ideas are combined over the course of the movement. The movement actually is in a fairly standard Sonata Allegro form, which is not typical of Liszt's symphonic uh, poems, which tend to be a little bit more free-flowing. But here's a little bit of how Liszt combines the two ideas. So we're going to leave list now and I'm going to ask my guest to is Manuel here? Ah, oh, there you are Manuel. Come on up please. So I will, would like to introduce you to Manuel Rosales. Welcome Manuel. Thank you for being here. I haven't see. Manuel was the, collaborated with Frank Geary on the design of the Walt Disney Concert Hall organ and later served as its tonal designer and principal voicer. The organ was built uh, in Germany by the firm of gladder Goetz and then brought here and Manuel was the lead person in, in getting the organ put together and voiced and uh, sounding the way it does, and he still maintains it. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, I asked Manuel here, he and I talked earlier this week, uh, because the program that you're gonna hear tonight is uh, very highly influenced, Uh, many of the pieces were very highly influenced by the great uh, French organ builder, Aristide cavaille cole the, um, the music of Vidor, Franck, and Langlais are all closely associated with the music, uh, the, the organs of Cavaillé Cole. Vidor was at the, org- uh, the Church of Saint-Sulpice from 1870 to 1933, César Franck was at the uh, the Basilica of saint Clotilde in Paris from 1858 to 1872 and Jean Langlais was at that same Basilica of saint Clotilde from 1945 until 1988 they all had long careers um, with cvaic coal organs and the organs clearly um, influenced their their composition so I I asked Manuel if he would come and sort of help me explore a little bit of Cole and some of the influences that he might have had on the organ organist organ uh, organ building world and so forth. And I want to begin with a quote about Aristide Cole. It says, "It is he who conceived." The diverse wind pressures, the divided wind chests, the pedal systems, and the combination registers, he who applied for the first time Barker's pneumatic motors, created the family of harmonic stops, reformed and perfected the mechanics to such a point that each pipe, low or high, loud or soft, instantly obeys the touch of the finger. From this result, the possibility of confining an entire division into a sonorous prison Opened or closed at will, the freedom of mixing timbres, the means of intensifying them or gradually tempering them, the freedom of tempos, the sureness of attacks, the balance of contrasts, and finally a whole blossoming of wonderful colors, a rich palette of the most diverse shades, harmonic flutes, gambas, bassoons, English horns, trumpets, celestes, flute stops, and reed stops of a quality and vi- variety hitherto unknown. Wow. Oh,
1: that's a, that's a tall bill.
0: That's a tall bill, and that's Charles-Marie Vidor speaking about Cava École. So without getting too much into well, the weeds. you have to
1: remember that Vidor's there because Cava Ecole helped him get the job. So why wouldn't he say something <laughs> nice?
0: <laughs> he must have. Well, I'm hoping that maybe you can help us unpack a so, little bit of this.
1: Organ building is one of those professions where chutzpah, and talent must go together. And when Cave École proposed his first organ, it would have been impossible for him to build it. Yet he won the prize for building it at Saint-Denis. It was an organ that mechanically could not exist if a human being was to play it. And luckily, an Englishman came across the water with an invention that had been rejected by his own British organ builders because they're so conservative, they don't want any new ideas, and they still don't. And he brought this idea to France, Cave École snatched it up and created an organ that was playable and musical at a size that had not been heard of before. And it was able to do many of the things that Vidor was praising it Mm -hmm. With the color, the the changes of stops that an organist could do by themselves without having stop pullers. Uh, We will have a stop puller tonight, by the way. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, Ah. an assistant. Um, the, um, The beauty of his organs is renowned. Also, the beautiful churches in which he worked with wonderful acoustics where you, a pin drop would fill the, the room with sound. We're not quite that lucky over no, here we're not on quite this side lucky. of the ocean. And the Walt Disney concert hall has superb acoustics, but not cathedral acoustics. So in the voicing of the organ to bring some of that cave école sound into the instrument, that had to be done through design and voicing, not just to bring the organ in and say, oh, isn't it wonderful? The room is doing most of the work. The organ here does the work. And the organists, of course. The
0: organ that you're referring to as Saint Denis, that, I believe that was an existing instrument that he sort of expanded. Is that, is that correct?
1: Not really. Uh, there may have been an organ there that he used parts of, but it is so radically different than any organ ever built before. That hit had really has to be credited to Kavey Cole, so, and that launched his career. You know,
0: right, right, it, right. Uh, well, so what what was what was it that Kavey Cole brought that made what would have been an unplayable organ
1: playable? This machine that was deved- developed by Mr. Barker, okay, at, in in England, that was rejected in England and Cave Cole saw the immediate advantage of having it. What does it do? Well, in organ building up to that point, everything that the organ needed to open its air valves to all of its pipes was done by the fingers of the player. And that limited how many valves you could open at once and how much wind you could enter into the pipes. So organ building defined itself by the human factor. Cole introduced this Barker machine in which the player only opened a tiny valve and a very large pneumatic motor did all the work. And you could play an endless number of, of pipes. Mm-hmm. And every note on the keyboard had one of these machines. And in that instrument, every keyboard had one. And even the pedals. So all of a sudden now an organist was as if he was five or six different people playing at once. This was unheard of. The first thing that uh, that
0: uh, Vidor mentions is the issue of wind pressure. Can you explain for just a moment what how what wind pressure is as it relates to the organ and what
1: did to change the nature of the organ with wind pressure? Well, uh, partly what, what uh, Vidor is writing is, is a little bit of hyper is hyperism on, on this topic. Uh, an organ's pipes play, basically play at the same wind pressure that a human can play. It, they're, they, they essentially they are imitation of wind instruments. Cave Cole was able to raise the pressures because the player was no longer doing the mechanical work. And he, in some instruments, upped the pressure on the upper part of the keyboard as relative to the low part because these big rooms were very weak for the treble sounds. We didn't do that here. It wasn't necessary. But he didn't do it on every organ because it was a very expensive solution to a problem that, uh, generally speaking, could be solved in the voicing itself. Mm-hmm. And when you say voicing, what exactly do you mean? When an organ arrives and the organ here at the concert hall is 6,143 pipes, they make sounds, but they're not cohesive. They're not in tune. It took. 10 and a half months to work here at the concert hall, sometimes during the day, sometimes at night. So voicing is that process in which we listen to every single pipe, not just by itself, but in relationship to others. The different stops of the organ are related to each other, all with a goal to have a cohesive, big sound and yet have all those individual colors all the way down to pianissimo each be beautiful in themselves. So without giving you a demonstration, I hope you could appreciate that voicing is very much a product of the person that's doing it. I and my team are very cohesive in that regard. We work together quite a bit. We had these goals in mind. People say, well, how did you possibly tackle 6,143 pipes? One at a time. <laughs> so
0: you were intricately involved in the design of the instrument and not, not the, the, the visual design. The visual, yes. And, and also the, the, the tonal design, yeah. that is to say the stop list and, and how the organ was going to sound ultimately.
1: Well, when the... Uh, the building was being designed. Frank Gehry was hired. Ernest Fleischman, who was the executive director at the time, wanted an organ. And logically, the organ goes front and center. God bless him for
0: that, because not every new concert hall it has executive director wanted an organ.
1: And uh, he wanted one, and he understood the importance of it. Frank Gehry didn't understand it at all. He simply had no organ culture. So I was hired not to build the organ, but to work with Frank Gehry. And I was given veto power, much to Frank Gehry's chagrin. (laughs) Because his imagination and his wonderfully creative team came up with designs like no organ has ever looked before.
0: Well, this organ is like no other organ. Well,
1: this is design number 43. (laughs) Can you give us an example, perhaps? The first one was uh, the pipes were hanging from the ceiling upside down.
0: Which in and of itself wouldn't affect the sound, right? No,
1: but uh, the the whole organ was thrust against the ceiling, and the console was up in the air. And I said, well, how's the organist gonna get up there? Well, we'll have a lift. And they'll just rise in front of the audience to the console. Cameron Carpenter would have loved that. Well, (laughs) perhaps. But most of our clients won't even step six inches up to a platform without feeling fears of height. This would never have worked. (laughs) That is not the only absurd example. But absurd is, is really unfair. Creativity in that environment was incredible. It was supposed to take three, maybe six months to design the organ. It took two and a half years of model after model after model. And finally, there was a design that someone came up with in his office. Nobody really knows how it happened. And I looked at it and I said, that has potential and that's where that led to the one that we have now and it may look like chaos but every single pipe is exactly to the millimeter where frank geary wanted it one of the questions that
0: that i'm often asked is if those pipes that we see
1: all work they all work except for two and i'll keep those a secret (laughs) but everyone makes a note and those wooden the boxes as people refer to them as, are the actual pipes. There's no pipe inside, it is the pipe. It just happens to be that Frank wanted to do something different and those pipes which usually reside behind the scenes are the ones he wanted to have in the open. Another
0: feature of this organ that's very obvious when someone is playing it um, is what Vidor called confining an entire division into a sonorous prison opened or closed at will and you'll see these doors opening and closing. What exactly is that all about?
1: Those are expression louvers. One thing an organ can't do is play loud and soft a particular pipe. We have different pipes that play softly and graduating many 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 different sets all the way through fortissimo. But if you want to do a subtle shading of softening the sound, you can't do that by changing the wind pressure in the pipe because it will go out of tune. So organ builders, being clever people, put the pipes in a box and put louvers in front. And as the louvers open and close, you get the muffling when they're closed and the freedom of the sound as they open. That is another Frank Geary, uh design feature he wanted to see those in motion mm-hmm. you usually don't right. so you can watch the louvers uh, if the music gets a little boring just watch the louvers <laughs> they'll keep you very interested
0: <laughs> another organ builder who I know and whom you know Charles Fisk built an organ for a church where I was for many years, and he, in the building process, he t- we talked about these, these expression louvers, and he said that it was his hope that when the, when the box was closed and the organist brought on all of the stops in that division that was behind the closed doors, the congregation would start shaking for fear that a tiger was going to be let
1: loose upon them. <laughs> well... That would have been a toy tiger on that <laughs> organ. But yes, we have that effect here. You, you, if you watch the upper part of the organ and the louvers are closed, and somehow the organ is beginning to sound loud, you'll see that it gets a lot louder when those upper louvers are opened. Yeah. Well,
0: we have time for just one or two questions if anyone has a question, because Manuel does have to sort of go back to work in a few moments. Does anybody have a question that they would like to pose? Yes, ma'am. Ah, so he, she's asking if the gentleman yeah, plays the organ himself.
1: Not really. And certainly not in a way you'd want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what the organ sounds like does require a vast knowledge of the literature. But having to uh, perform it? No. We have lots of friends that will come and try the organ out for us. And when we're working for a client, usually the organist never leaves. They always want to know, how is it going? Let's try it out. And those are very valuable relationships.
0: That being the case, and this will be the last question, how did you get into doing
1: what you're doing if you're not oh. really an organist, by your own well, words? Well, uh, the organ has a way of biting uh, some people when they're young, and it didn't exactly do that. My dad took me to see the movie Fantasia when I was about 12 years old. I don't know how many of you have know the movie Fantasia. It's been released in a modern form as well. And I had been very, uh, well-educated on symphonic music by my cousin. I knew Beethoven, I knew Brahms, I knew, but I'd never heard of Bach. How could you not hear of Bach? There you go. The piece that opened the movie was the Bach, Toccata, and D minor, and I was absolutely transfixed. Moving to the next day, I, I guess I nagged my father. I said, I want a recording of that piece. Let's go buy one. And the only recording available was an organ recording. The rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, please thank Manuel and
0: thank you, sir. Kind sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, thank you for your attention. Please enjoy the concert.